0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's very, very nice to see you. A couple of familiar faces, but most not. The subject of this evening's lecture is education in a broad sense. We're going to have a look at education, at philosophy in education, and we'll have a look at a 14th century movement in education, a modern-day movement in education, and from this we'll try to deduce uh, what is a true education for today's world and whether it's possible to educate youngsters today to lead a good and a a true and a useful life in all respects to start with let's state something obvious initiatives in education have taken place in a great number of countries and right through the ages Frebel, Montessori, Steiner will be familiar to you As those associated also with religious movements such as the Quaker schools, Jewish schools, Muslim schools, Church of Ireland schools, Roman Catholic schools. And within the Roman Catholic Church there are all the various orders and dedicated to teaching. Each with its own particular emphasis. The Jesuits uh, will have given you a different education to the Christian Brothers and the Dominicans, slightly different to the Sisters of Mercy. And then there are Grail Scholl and multi-denominational schools, German schools, international schools, state schools, and all giving some particular emphasis to education. Almost all of them follow the state curriculum and they bring enough of a difference of emphasis to allow them to stand alone and proud as recognizably different to justify their existence. And to emphasise this point, now that the orders are barely involved in the schools anymore due to lack of priests and lack of nuns and lack of brothers, they're asking themselves very seriously, for instance, what is a Christian brother school? what is a Dominican school and they're defining or attempting to define what are the characteristics that mark that school out so they're looking at the very foundations of the schools and then hoping that in reformulating those that the teachers now will be able to take on board those principles and then educate from them and that is a very tall order to sense have a Dominican school without Dominicans there or a CBS school without Christian brothers Now these movements have or had a vision of the fully formed human being in mind into which they hoped their children would grow They all know that the only way to inculcate values and vision in a particular system is to start young and all these educators believe that the future of their particular philosophy of life is in the hands of the young. So without rearing children in that philosophy, the whole movement won't really be able to achieve its full potential. Huge resources and efforts have gone into the the beginnings of such movements, calling for amazing individual efforts. Now the primary aim of these movements has been to teach you how to live to lead a good life, to uphold certain values. Very few of them set out primarily to teach you how to get a good job. And yet children commonly tell you that they're at school to pass exams and to get a job. So either at schools, we're not getting this message across properly, or the schools have forgotten how to get the message across, or they've forgotten what their founding principles mean. And the latter, perhaps, is the most common cause. Now, the School of Philosophy is a relatively new movement, and it has indeed also set up schools for children. Back in the 1930s, Leon McLaren decided to found a school, and the school was for mankind. It was a big vision. And 40 years later, 44 years later, He founded the children's schools, and he was 65 at the time. The philosophy that Leon McLaren espoused was helped when he discovered a man of great wisdom, the then Shankaracharya of Northern India, with whom he held about 15 lengthy conversations spread over nearly 30 years. In his part one philosophy course in 1966, Mr. McLaren wrote this, Truth lives in each of us, waiting to be revealed, but it does not act as master. In truth, each is made whole. In truth, all are united. Truth has no face by which it may be recognised, nor body by which it may be known. Yet the man who has found truth in himself knows it and sees it in everything. While he knows it and sees it in everything, he is free from error. Find truth, find immortality. And the key in this is that this truth does not act as master. So it doesn't seek to dominate. It waits. It sits and waits and watches. So the way to go to find this is inward and in the school of philosophy there has been a distinct and deliberate marriage of the East and the West and to bring true understanding to all aspects of life the way first and foremost to go is inwards now to bring this philosophy to fruition there are three steps realize the self learn the truth And display freely. Now first one, the great question of philosophy, the big question is who am I? What am I? And to ask it not at an intellectual level only, to know it more than just as a cold fact. The answer from the Vedanta is this, I am full of consciousness, full of knowledge and full of bliss." So there's a description of self, this waiting self, watching self, the self that does not act as master, but waiting to be discovered. But that may answer the question at one level, but to really understand it, it obviously needs to be known in practice. And this is, of course, the solution to every problem. Every problem is in fact a perceived lack of consciousness or a lack of knowledge or a lack of bliss. And having decided that oneself is full of consciousness and of knowledge and of bliss, then there is a capacity to solve the problems. It's like confidence. Confidence that it is there, the solution is there. As Shakespeare said, assume a virtue if you have it not. Now in a sense, that is, assume a virtue if you think mistakenly that you haven't got it. But, assume a virtue if you have it not. And, and let's put it in another way somewhere else, whatever you think you lack, that give. But it's the same thing. Assume a virtue if you have it not. So if you're fearful, assume fearlessness. If you're miserable, assume happiness. The very fact that it is possible to do this proves something. That the assumed virtue is actually there, waiting to be accessed. Proving, Leon McLaren's point, that the truth is in each of us, waiting to be revealed. You cannot point this often enough to people, whether child or adult. And then Leon McLaren expressed this in his first of his Principles of Education. And he said, give them, that's give the children, information of the simple principles of spiritual knowledge, of the universe, of man's relation thereto, and of man, in the belief that the child really knows. And if the information is given simply and accurately enough, it will connect with that inner knowledge and will let it grow. There's another example of realize the self, and it relates to Sister Genevieve O'Farrell, as you may have seen, or you may have seen last December, she died on the 29th of December last year. She has been described as one of the most remarkable Irish women of the last century. And if you read a book about her life, I think you'd probably agree. She was an educator with a mission, but she started out being absolutely determined, have nothing to do with teaching. She joined the toughest and the strictest sisterhood that she could find at the age of 18, which was the Daughters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul. And she wanted to work with the marginalised in society. And she deliberately set out not to join any other order of teaching nuns. Anyway, she was told pretty well immediately to go and teach by her superiors, and at that stage she had no choice. So she trained... And very shortly after this, she was in Belfast in a primary school in the Falls Road. And two years later, in 1958, she was vice-principal of a new, large, comprehensive secondary school for girls. And five years later, again, she was principal of that school and she guided the school through the worst of the troubles. And from its humble beginning, when. Children in the Falls did not even expect a a secondary education of any sort. It became the largest single-sex school in Western Europe, ending up with 2,400 girls. Now, she used every trick in the book to give the girls a good opinion of themselves. That was her first job, to get them to assume this virtue, which they assumed they hadn't got the others had. She insisted on uniform just to put them on a level playing field uh, with the others from the better parts of the city. The parents could barely afford it. They couldn't afford it. She insisted on high standards of behaviour, both in school and outside it, and was against the use of corporal punishment, which is unusual at that time. She wanted good discipline so that the reputation of the school would be good, encouraging employers and others to accept the girls. She persuaded parents to allow their children to go on, firstly to the later parts of secondary education and then right through to 18. And this was a really tough order for the families because they needed another wage as soon as possible. So in this school, St. Louisa's School in the Falls Road, they were taught to assume a virtue of self-confidence, and in the most treacherous and difficult circumstances, it did work. Without the particular strength of this nun, which included a very tough version of love, she did not suffer fools gladly of any sort. She couldn't have done it. And she took on everyone. No, it wasn't just the girls she managed to lift, but anyone across her path she straightened out. From army to IRA, nothing could intimidate this woman. And it was that, I suppose, confidence she passed on. The great Nelson Mandela said, each of us, if we are afraid of anything, are afraid of our greatness. And the greater we are, the more we fear it, because with this greatness is responsibility to use it, and we'd prefer to keep our options open. I remember Mr. McLaren saying that the Irish are very close to the self, of self that we are to realise in stage one. We can all agree with that, but we have a particular way of avoiding the full expression of it. We have a curious habit of putting ourselves down. We hide our lights in lazy speech. We drown drown our intelligence in alcohol. I use happy to be sloppy, and. So it is, particularly working with teenagers in Dublin, it is amazing the efforts that they go to to hide their quite remarkable light and intelligence under something. They hide it. And our job, the job of any good system of education, would be to get that inner strength and that inner light to shine and not to be hidden. So all of that is a part of realise the self, which is the first stage in this sort of bringing philosophy to fruition. Stage two is learn the truth. And this must be the truth about everything. And it should be full of interest. It should cover all the subjects. It's a very big area the first of these areas of knowledge must be language what laws govern words sentences speech how to speak well what language is for what are the roots of language and you cannot avoid Sanskrit if you are to get at the roots. Uh, do I see some experts in Sanskrit back there? No. but there are some very profound principles which were revealed through Sanskrit and the Sanskrit language is said to embody all the laws for language and it really does behove us to make a good study of that language and so it will filter out into others and that work has certainly started both in the school of philosophy and in the children's schools. Secondly there are laws of music so we need to learn what are those laws and what is good music what is bad music and what are the effects of different sorts of music our young are at the moment hiding in a citadel of appalling music and the doors are locked and it won't let us in, Why, we don't want to go in but they wouldn't have us there anyway but it is very powerful medium. It's next to language in power. It's a great pity that that area has become their kind of no-go area, and they are indulging in elements of music that may not be at all useful for their health. However, if there's no real work going on in music, then how can anybody really discover what are the true laws of music? And how can anybody speak intelligently about it? How will you convince anyone that there is good music and there is bad music? The music has to be studied in an intelligent way by intelligent people and then something may arise. There's mathematics and what's mathematics? Are there laws there? Again, there's a whole area called Vedic mathematics which the school has started work on and this again is looking at law in mathematics. Then there's science. What are the principles of science? Is there a metaphysical dimension to science? Art. What is beauty? Are there laws which, if you follow, you will ultimately produce a work of beauty? And so, same in, in movement, in dance, in sport drama, law, government, this is a stage of learn the truth and this is very much the truth about the creation. So first job, realise the self, second, learn the truth, thirdly, is to give it all back. So that's to display freely and this is the third and the final part of the plan. So what does this mean? Well, lots of people like to display things freely, like their wealth, but what is it to display the truth freely? Some talk you into the ground, irrespective of whether you have any interest in what they're saying. So what are they displaying? Some cannot crack out of the tiny bubble that they build around themselves. What are they displaying? There are few enough people acting at a level of real service to the the community or of the nation, and I don't mean politically, I mean just at a level of service of art, service of literature, service of music, service through devotion, service of the spiritual world. But to display freely at that level is really giving back what has been received through the other two stages and really it is an essential part of it because you can't hold on or it just goes stale. It has to be given. Now we can always ask, well, what are our talents? And are we using them for the benefit of others on as big a stage as possible? It's natural to use talent on as big a stage as possible. Pavarotti didn't confine his singing to his bath and Roy Keane didn't confine his football to Cove ramblers So what are our talents? And are we really making use of them? Both children and adults hide their talents, bury them, because using them actually means work and is often not in our game plan, because our understanding of the purpose of man is limited. So the vision of man is the first thing to get straight, and hence philosophy. And thus displaying freely requires philosophy to be applied in the world, with the world, for the world. And in the words of the Shankaracharya that I mentioned earlier, he said, there is no clash between the world and the absolute. And one can become master of the world and a companion of the self simultaneously. So those are the three elements. Realize the self, learn the truth, and display freely. So how does all that then translate into an education system? Well, according to Leon McLaren, the principles to be applied in education relate to three areas. Giving information, reminding of one's duty, and thirdly, giving opportunity for disciplined practice. And on the first, the information is given as we had heard, have heard earlier tonight, in the belief that the child really knows. And if the information is given simply and accurately enough, it will connect with that inner knowledge and then make it available to the child. So this is the interesting thing, because if the information is not given, the child remains uneducated and ignorant, even though it's all inside anyway. So, this step is essential. And this information that must be given relates to simple principles of spiritual knowledge. Who am I, but unity, God, the causal, the subtle, the gross realms, and stillness. It relates to knowledge of the universe, that's all the subjects the children study. It relates to man, what man is, and what's his or her purpose and lastly the individual's relation to all that. So that's the information bit. Then there's duty. uh, And the child has a duty to remember the Creator and to live according to the fine regulations of the universe and finally to find the way back to God. And the implication is that only if the human being fulfills these three duties can he be content. And without fulfilling them, they will be restless. And then thirdly, Leon McLaren said that the child needs practice. And these practices are in the fields of the spiritual world, mental and physical. Now, these principles are coupled with advice from the Shankaracharya on education and together they make what we can call the McLaren system of education. The words from the Shankaracharya on education directly are only amounting to about twenty-five pages which really isn't very much but it's quality stuff and as a result it can be returned to again and again and again it seems to reveal more each time and it includes what is the nature of the child it includes the need for character building how to treat children of different ages how to treat the 5 year old the 10 year old the 16 year old how to present material to children how the teacher should behave and why how to respect a teacher how the respect for that authority of the teacher is a foundation stone what are the key principles when educating a child what about love and discipline how do they relate in the education of a child. He deals with the need for song, the need for meditation, the need for no boredom, an overriding emphasis on the provision of good material, of good company. The questions of drugs, of sex, of reverence and honour for womanhood, for dealing with willfulness, What is history? And various other places in the conversations, of course, language, Sanskrit, art, mathematics, number, economics, astronomy, are all dealt with. Now, we'll see shortly how one school in Ireland is getting on with trying to implement these principles. But first, by way of providing historical context to this type of a movement in education, here's a story about a movement called the Brethren of the Common Life which started in Holland in 1350. This is chosen probably because nobody's heard of it. Would I be right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And over the next 200 years, educated large numbers of youths in schools that they set up throughout Europe, producing some very big thinkers, among them Thomas Aquinas, Erasmus, Nicholas of Cusa. There was a huge influence from this movement through Europe. You know, the key man here was a man called Geert Grote. And until he was 34, he was just like you and me, living an ordinary life. And then he had a vision, and he gave everything away. And he adopted an ascetic approach to life, and he started preaching. But the thing was, he was really good at preaching. And he was controversial. And the clergy tried to silence him, but the problem was everybody loved him, and thousands hung on every word from his lips. A contemporary wrote this, The towns were filled with devotees, you might know them by their silence, their ecstasies during Mass, their mean attire, their eyes flaming or full of sweetness, and so on. And so he sought permission to preach directly from the Pope, because he wasn't getting on very well where he was. And the permission did arrive, uh, but just after he died. But the Brotherhood was given approval by the Holy See. And in those few years, he had said and done enough to ignite Northern Europe, um, including ultimately Luther and the Reformation. But firstly, he wanted to combine true learning with spiritual principles and practice. That's his aim. So quite unusually for his era, he wanted people actually to read the Bible themselves. And he translated part of it into the vernacular. I mean, that idea progressed through to over the next couple of hundred years. And people got into awful trouble for it and got burned at the stake. For doing so, but he was able to do it here, and he translated part of it, and he advocated a close union with God, and the title of the most famous treatise to come out of this movement shows this, which is Thomas Kempis's "The Imitation of Christ." Now, the brethren were groups of largely lay people. they have been described as practical philosophers or mystics. They made efforts to reform the church, which was in a very sorry state at the time with widespread corruption and two popes, if you recall at that time, one in Rome and the other in Avignon. They took no vows, they had to work for their daily bread, they weren't allowed to beg. They occupied themselves with literature and education and all this time when there were no scholars in the land of Holland anywhere there's practically no knowledge of Latin in Holland since this was before the advent of printing in 1492 swathes of time were spent in writing out scriptural writings and their own writings to broadcast them and the brethren employed the very best teachers in their schools which then became centers of spiritual and intellectual life And these brethren taught in their schools what was considered to be the elementary subjects of the humanities, which was literature and the classics, Latin, uh, philosophy, and theology. And religious orders looked askance at these brethren, who were neither monks nor friars, but the brethren found protection from uh, over time from at least three popes and a few cardinals. And at that time, the other side of the movement's work, which was the establishment of monasteries uh, with the same aims and practices as as the Brethren, they'd given rise to almost 100 monasteries throughout Europe, mostly in Holland. But like the Brethren, there was emphasis here on direct and deep spiritual experience. And the study of the Bible and the ancient fathers of the church was central. So there was always emphasis on the inner meaning, the inner life, and their piety, which has been called an ethical or biblical piety, was said to resemble the Franciscans, and their practices were said to resemble Dominicans. So much of the best work of the Brethren was done through their schools. Their original houses in Daventer in, in Utrecht, in Holland, and in Daventer, at the height of its success in 1500 with 2,000 students, some uh, educational establishment with 2,000 students in 1500. Erasmus was at Deventer and developed a taste for Latin literature there, and throughout his life Erasmus was to regard his knowledge of ancient languages and love of ancient literature as something to be put at the service of the spirit, of the spiritual ideal. Erasmus was a true Renaissance spirit who roamed Europe free to teach and study. He was a voice of consensus in a divided Europe. In England, he teamed up with two formidable men, Thomas More and John Collett. Later in England, again, he translated the New Testament, which was to become the basis of Tyndall's version of the Bible. And he did that against enormous opposition. One of the most interesting things about this movement is that very few of us will have heard of it. Perhaps we'll only know the, the main men that came out of it. And maybe that is a mark of a great movement. But little knowledge of the movement itself is common knowledge at all. And yet it has had a staggering effect. So to move on to... The McLaren schools of today, schools of philosophy have sprung up on all continents since about 1965. Australia has four or five schools. Uh, there are some in South Africa, in North America, it's been New York and Boston and Canada, Holland, in Scotland and England there are lots. In Ireland there are a range of them. Now I guess these schools have between them, you know, 20,000 students of all ages, and the longer-established philosophy schools have associated with them now these children's schools. in Sydney, there's one in Melbourne, in Auckland, in Johannesburg, New York, in Trinidad, in London, in Leeds and in Dublin. It's a motley kind of. Uh, rendition of names, isn't it? Only two of these have a secondary school as well and Dublin is one of them. So the Dublin school is called John Scotus, uh, beginning in 1986. It was just about the time when the five-pound note was being printed. The then new five-pound note and it had a, a rather ugly drawing of John Scotus on the front. He looks like Keith Wood. You know, I'm a prop forward with a very strange kind of... He's totally unphilosophical. But there is John Scotus. And his rise to our attention as a nation coincided with the rise of John Scotus. And having looked into him, he was a remarkable philosopher and a Platonist and an upholder of exactly the tradition that... We would like to see upheld. And so we asked him to be our patron, and we didn't receive a rejection. So the school became John Scotus School. So, how is the philosophy of Leon McLaren expressing itself in this school? Uh, does it look like a school which will give rise to either a great man or a great woman, or to a renaissance in thought, in art, religion, literature? Well, the Department of Education, in giving the primary and secondary school temporary recognition, was unable to slot it into any existing category, which is very, very good news. They saw it as offering something different and couldn't be put there or there or there. And yet, the word diversity was a buzzword at the time, thank heavens, and it was offering diversity in the field of education so they were happy to have us so now we have a kind of a category all of our own in the john scotus system so let's have a look at the, the steps in bringing philosophy to fruition realize the self learn the truth and display freely and see how they apply in john scotus case so for realize the self we've got the following pause do you know about the pause you would have been introduced if you have attended a part one philosophy course to the pause or the exercise and this is where before and after any event or activity you just let the mind fall still and drop any ideas you had or have any that are circulating in the mind and just connect with the present moment don't think about anything just be here now that's called the pause in John Scotus, the children do it 20 times every day, at the beginning and end of every lesson. And the idea is that it becomes a part of their makeup, so they wouldn't ever think of beginning anything without falling still. And that's a very good condition for beginning anything, just to fall still. Then there's meditation. And for those over 10 and for the staff, Uh, This must be the finest and the most far-reaching practice that the school could possibly give the children. They don't really see the effect of it, and they're not running out into the streets and saying, hey, everybody, come follow us to meditation. But they do appreciate it. And really, when you're over 16, you kind of really need it, you know but they are establishing the practice of it under 16. But they're in a very different world to us under 16 and they really get to appreciate periods of 5 or 10 minutes where their mind is just given to centering and focusing and letting everything else uh, settle out. So that's meditation. And then there's knowledge And that comes from philosophy and assemblies and conversations between pupils and teachers. The powerful and and the undoubting message of the Vedanta is that there really is only one true permanent self and that will not die. And I I think most of the children in John Scotus do not believe they're ever going to die and I think that's a very positive thing. They hear that all knowledge, consciousness, and happiness is within them. And they hear that other people's happiness is their happiness. They're also taught that this life we live is a drama, it's a play. And there is always a clear space between the actor and the drama. The good actor is always aware of who he is, and then he's aware of the the character he's playing in the play, but he's always aware of who he is. An actor who's been playing a very depressing part should not leave the theatre depressed. So in the same way, whatever sort of day we've had, there it was was just a day on the stage, and we have good days, we've got bad days, and we've got all sorts of days, so just watch the drama as it unfolds. Watch it, but don't be attached to it enjoy it and move on with learn the truth we certainly go along with the Devon movement in providing the humanities and in our case it's Sanskrit Greek Latin English and then the modern languages Irish French of course, we're not doing the classical subjects in anything like the depths they would have done 500 years ago, nor even fifty years ago, but nonetheless, they are at the heart of what we want to give to the children. and the Shankaracharya said in relation to this "Learn the truth," the provision of good material is the first factor. Keep giving good material, maintain its regular supply if they take it they will be good enough to look for what they need and build their character accordingly. So they build it based on what you, you know, they're given. Well, it is a great task to provide the best at all times. And you can't rely on, on textbooks to provide the best material. You have to give it yourself or present the material that the books have in this night. And that needs time, and few teachers believe they've got time. So those that are doing it are indeed amazing people and becoming more amazing year on year. And then there is display freely, and that is tough. This is when you give back. If this step is not fulfilled, the philosophy does not flower. It's limited to a world delimited by the ego of the person. So we have to be exposed, children have to be exposed in plays publicly, in concerts and debates, in reading in public, in matches, in sports, in singing, etc., and in service to the community. And in these circumstances, whether they meet success or failure, they learn not to compromise their dignity and not to forget themselves. So at this time, at the same time, they should not feel peer pressure not to display freely. They do, but they shouldn't. Uh, they have to learn how to somehow not to give in to that. They do, um, and they are put under a certain amount of pressure not to have their uniform in order and not to have their books for the day and not to, you know, all the things you know. But somehow, through all that, They have to learn how to display freely and not feel restricted by the constraints that others put on them. They have to step over that fear and they have to give what they have to give. We've had only 58 graduates in John Scotus. They only started coming out the top of John Scotus then only a a few years ago. They're all... Carrying confidence, there's no doubt about that. They certainly have, I don't know, there's a composure about them. They they do seem to know where they're going, and there is honesty. They are very honest, and there is a notion of service to the nation. They nearly all go. What well they didn't do? All they all go on to third level. Um, just totting them up. And of those 58, 24 have gone to, to Trinity for no good reason, seven to UCD, uh, and the, the the other half have sort of spread thinly through the other colleges and universities in Dublin and some North, some England. And they have pursued various careers from law. One's actually studying Greek and Latin, God bless her. She was a golden student in every way through university and scholar and everything. Two went to South Africa, They're both back now. We've got a couple working in John Scotus, back teaching, which is a real privilege. Some are working in hospitals. They're engineers, both girls. And it's just the boys joined them. So, uh, on it goes. The only point I'm making is that the spread of interest uh, has been uh, highly diverse. Much more important has been to us is what they are really in themselves. And we would mark the success in their education by what they are, by their being. And indeed, most importantly, there is an interest in philosophy amongst them, amongst those. It is hoped that there will arise some who will be called great. We need some greats in Ireland again, and with a bit of luck, they will be recognised by us this time, because it was the dictum of W. B. Yeats in the doll in Michael Shannon in 1926. He said this. And I bet you've never heard this. Ireland has produced only two great men of religious genius, he said. Johannes Scotus. Ariugina, this is John Scotus, who lived a long time ago, and Bishop Barclay, who kept his Plato by his Bible, and Ireland has forgotten both. Note that uh, both Scotus and Barclay united Christianity and Platonism. Uh, Scholars call this uniting East and West. And this is exactly what the School of Philosophy is doing, except its East includes both Plato and the Vedanta. And so that constitutes the framework, our background for our philosophical base. And so we've seen in the last few minutes why we have education at all, why we have philosophy um, allied to education. We've seen this Philosophic and educational movement in the 14th century and not a similar one today and We've had a look at what true education might mean in today's world So with that I'd only ask you to provide the other half of this evening which is your questions comments points or maybe one of you want to give a lecture in the second half, but please do return and provide a kind of the the compliment for the evening. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. So ladies and gentlemen, are there any questions, observations, or mini-lectures in the room?
1: Thank you very much for a very inspiring lecture. Thank you. I was wondering what role self-esteem plays in education in general, in terms of, you mentioned uh, self-confidence, and I suppose that will be on a par with self-esteem, so if, if you'd like to comment on that, please.
0: Well, uh, absolutely. It's right in the realm of this first of the foundation principles of how we bring philosophy to fruition. So you meet children of all kind of levels in terms of what they think of themselves. And some think a lot of themselves. <laughs> Others think very little of themselves. But the type of self-esteem we really want is. Where they have a kind of a deep inner confidence in their own self. Not so much in where they lie in respect to other people, you know, which can be this very brash kind of confidence, it isn't what we're looking for. It's a much deeper thing, and that is at the level of self esteem, how you perceive yourself and. I mean, a high self-esteem is what needs to be there at the end of education. I mean, think what happens when that's there. Whatever they go out to do, they see the world as a playground, and they see it's full of potential, and they've only got one question, and that is, how do I fit or relate to all this? so where's my position what have I got to offer and that's a great question and if they're just confident in themselves that it is all there they're lacking nothing then they will flower they don't have to do anything else so I mean self-esteem is right at the basis of all this but it's in the beginning of those three of that triad and without it, little useful can happen. So then, I mean, if, you, if you're wondering how, when you find somebody with low self-esteem, what to do, well, the first thing is to give them confidence that they have everything. And you do this by a number of ways. Uh, one is you tell them. And to be told that they are pure, perfect and complete is a very helpful thing. If you say it to them, particularly if you start at the primary stage, they keep hearing it, they gradually believe it because it's true. So that's the beginning of it. Then the way you as their parent or their teacher or the person in front of them act has a big effect. So if, if you have good self-esteem, then that brings it out of them. And they actually want to become like you. And All of us would have met someone during our youth who we wanted to imitate. We really thought that that man or that woman was a bee's knees. <laughs> and we'll all remember someone like that, and I certainly do. and. Notice my mannerisms and everything else imitating his, and the way I teach. But it is something that just by example we pass on to them. So you give the instruction about it and you teach by example. And then when they have problems with it, then you remind them again. So it's a continuous process that works all the way through education. But by the time they leave school, they should have it. Does that help? So is there anything else?
2: I'm not quite sure how to phrase this because it's a question which moves a little way to the side from what you have been talking about. With the current problems that the world has, it's clear that we need to teach differently. Really we can't continue with the world as it is. I personally don't feel that we have the time to wait for the current primary school to become the leaders. What do you see as the opportunity for educators to change the performance of our current leaders and the leaders
0: who are in waiting?
3: Hmm.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The leaders that we've got, that's easy. I mean, the leaders that we've got, their education finished some time ago. And they are operating under the ideas that they received as children. That's their primary influence. They'll be copying what they were brought up with. And they'll be presenting the ideas that they were presented and they thought to be true. It does appear at the moment in the world there are very few true leaders. Even someone at the head of a country, of somebody at the head of a huge organization, someone like the Pope at the head of a church, well he, he does appear to have done his job. I mean he has led the Catholic Church. But I don't know how many there are that we could count. And of those, how many we could influence, we would waste a lot of energy achieving a very little effect. So in a way that's like the bullet that's left the gun and it's going to travel and it's going to end up where it's going to end up. It's gone. No matter where you point the gun, it's not going to make a difference to where the bullet's going. So we have to look at the next generation. So you say, well, can we wait? Can we wait for primary school children to become leaders? It's a very good question. So, since this is a school of practical philosophy, our first effort should be that at least we take a stand in leadership wherever we find ourselves. And all of us are leading somewhere, and every single one of us. no, No one is not a leader in this room. You don't have to wait to be T-shirt before you change the country. In fact, if you are T-shirt, you find it's very, very difficult to change the country. It's very difficult. So we may, in fact, be a bit freer. It does appear that the real leaders are those that put the ideas in, the, the true ideas in, to currency. And it may take 45 or 50 years before they actually kind of show their heads and uh, these seed ideas are the really interesting ones so if we can plant seed ideas at this stage about the greatness of man and the limitless nature of man they will grow all over the place and in a few cases they will really flower so uh, that's why I think to be a teacher is the noblest. It's a noble profession and the potential is huge. It's not, as I keep telling the teachers I'm entrusted with, the children aren't going to remember school primarily for the biology class and the English class. They are going to remember it as what they experience at the level of being. And when they say, Ah yeah, my primary school it was like this, my secondary school it was like this. They will be describing human qualities. They'll be describing knowledge, happiness, consciousness in some form. Uh, and they may also say, oh, I had a great English teacher, fantastic biology teacher. But that will be marginal. So the question is, of what is the experience then we give these children? And if it is that centrally we tell them about what their true nature is and then cause their true nature to grow and flower, I think that is the greatest service you can do towards leadership in the future. And put it about as much as possible.
2: I agree what you, what you say and, and I appreciate that what I was asking was a little bit to the side. For me, yeah. the display freely yes. is what influences the behavior of the current leaders and for those who have in some way realized who they are and have some feel for the truths. If we can display freely, we do actually influence thousands of people around us when we do that. And it takes courage. And I think that that courage is something that we all just need to stand up and display.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, it's very good to hear you say that. It's very good. Funny, a lecture. I mean, there is a kind of a formal part to it. And then there's a the display freely bit, which is this, and it's so nice because you can't prepare, you, can't, you know, the potential is enormous. Anything can happen. It can go anywhere, and it's almost like it's there that the absolute can come in and say, "This is the moment, and something can happen." So it'd be very good if we could live our lives like that because our education. <coughs> It's finished. I mean, we should should have done all that, friends. We should be down here and just displaying what we know to be true freely. And influencing thousands.
4: I'm not quite sure exactly how to put the question. (laughs) There's a few all kind of wrapped up into one. You're saying that we should be there. So you're assuming by X age, 16 or whatever, that you have... Does that not suppose that by the time you get to, say, my age or whatever, that that's it, you've stopped learning? And to perfectly honest, <laughs> all due respect, that's probably not what you're saying, mm-hmm. but I think it's a load of nonsense. Quite. You're always learning, like, how is anybody supposed to reform? And then, going back to what the other gentleman was saying, kind of that people are still getting things, and people reform, like, say, spiritual, or, oh, my God, I realize this, and I woke up, and now my life's different, or whatever. And then another thing, is there a stage at which children's characters or people's characters are fundamentally formed. Mm. That they're not going to move from there, say by 16 that Mm. you're fundamentally this way and you're not going to change or can you fundamentally be this way and then something happen later? So it's kind of two questions like are fundamentally this is your character at one stage and then later can it be changed again?
0: Yeah, thank you very much, that's so good. I mean it is so like when a child is growing They've got this great kind of pile of wealth, I mean it could be bricks, say bricks, it's consciousness and over the 16 years it's going to put together a certain structure which it's going to live in for life but it is going to be built, something's going to be built and it can be thrown together and a rather you know, careless kind of character can develop or it can be built very carefully with a lot of attention from everybody and a very fine and useful character to be developed. So, question relating to this sort of when is it all finished? Well, the character is formed at 16. The character is formed. Now, then, I mean, is there any change possible after that in the answer courses? Yes. But it's like a refinement, certain parts of that character can be developed and, you know, like in a house you can build a conservatory or you can you know, do various things to it. But it is very useful to us as educators to conceive of the character being formed at 16. And then the character being used after that and of course refined. It can also go both ways, it can become finer, it can become coarser, but it is so useful for us to consider that sixteen is a very important age and we only have sixteen years just to get the character in place. You could take some examples of this, say in the realm of art or music or, say take music, and if this person is going to be very musical in their character, their musical character will be, be fundamentally shaped. It doesn't mean that somebody after 16 can't come up and, and suddenly take on music, but they're just not going to reach the levels of displaying freely in the realm of music than the pre-16 will. And so I see her smiling very broadly, and I'm going to let you come in again,
4: the only reason is, I'm smiling at that, and I was pre-16, but I have a friend, and she's one of the top violinists. She's a top? <laughs> she's a top violinist. Oh, she, yeah. She's, she's, she's really good, and she's, and she's started and start at, at
0: 14. 14? Yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> I'm all right. Wait a minute. <laughs> well,
4: what I was going to come in and ask you then is, what about all that, now, I don't fully understand what you mean by character, but taking one aspect of mm-hmm. character, say, that if a child has learned violence the whole way up, so you've got somebody at 18 and they're in detention centres and the government's spending, and it does spend like yes. thousands of pounds, yes. millions for whatever, yes. reforming these people, Correct. is it a waste of money?
0: No, because reformation is possible, but it consumes huge resources and energy.
4: So it's not just a refining, it's a reformation.
0: I mean by refining reformation, but it's not a completely rebuilding. You can't dismantle the entire thing. In fact, the best you can do is call on the finest that that person has learned, and define it. But, apart from all the character side of it, still there is the essential self, which is still there, pure, perfect and complete. There's still the possibility that that can awaken, Well, it it will transform things, it will bring the best out of their character. But we shouldn't think that it's okay not to put the very greatest attention in the first 16 years. It is really important that we get those 16 right. And I think teachers should be told, I mean, the gold, the golden opportunity is to make the life of these children easy. Easy and happy. And if you don't do the character building properly, they're difficult a difficult life you're making for them, if you let them lead a willful life beforehand, you're not making it easy for them afterwards. So, And we have the concept of the refined or the formed character that we want them to go into. And the parent holds that very dear, and right in the very, very earlier stage they'll be saying, no, 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 yes, 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 to them. And the teacher also needs to have that concept and hold it in mind, and then they will grow into this. But first of all, the teacher and the parent has to have that concept, and then let them grow into it. But so much that's good in your question, because I mean, the question of, well, what is this character anyway?
3: Do children love any child? Like, in a lot of cases you see children, sometimes they're just sort of kicked out in the street and so forth. And you know, they go according to sort of peer pressure and so forth. Yes. But I believe that, you know, if you give them a proper grounding, i.e. some type of religious education and so forth, regardless of what religion you are, they will automatically, you know, respect what's around them and so forth, and, and the difference between sort of right and wrong and truth and so forth. Yes. The basics of decency in life.
0: Indeed. It's all the force of love, this whole character building. But that's love with a capital L. Now, the analogy that's used by Shankaracharya, which is so useful, is that of the potter. And here's the, the potter's wheel, and you put upon it, a or throw upon it, a lump of clay. And you turn it, and... Now, let's do the finished product down here, if we can, (coughs) excuse me. But let's say we have a vase. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, So, now, this is a solid lump of clay, and here is your main. It's got a, a fine form, a shape, it's got walls like this and it is now a useful object for carrying water say. So how does the potter get from that to that? How does he do it? Right so it turns right so there's a set energy there's things happening and then what does he just look at it? With one hand both hands. Both where? Outside? How does it get a hollow in the middle? Oh, so he has a hand in. Right. So he has a hand in side, and he has a hand outside. Now, if you watch the forces at play, the hand inside raises it. I mean, if you watch them this expands the pot. And the hand on the outside is continually containing that expansion, giving it a shape. And if you took away this hand controlling the shape, it would just splay out and it'd explode. And if you didn't have the hand inside, it would just remain as a solid block. And it couldn't become the vase. So what is the hand inside that causes the expansion? What could you say that is it was expansion? Yep, it's guiding it uh, It comes from the parents certainly or from the teacher, but what is it? I'm going to give you the answer very very soon. I won't hold you in mystery Okay, so it comes through leadership Yes, I mean you're so close. So I just say it Love. Um, so love actually produces the expansion the different directions and what controls what's acting in that direction yes yeah, a protection it's a do you know do this don't do that discipline so they're the two and now the thing is they have to be in the right balance because if there's too much love, then you do get this thing, it's willful, it goes all over the place. If there's too much of the other, then it doesn't expand and become the form that you need. So it's a balance between love and discipline. Should it not be guidance rather than discipline? Should it not be guidance rather than discipline? Well, it just depends on how we understand discipline. And the way I would describe discipline, in a very positive way like the discipline of a swimmer what's the discipline of a swimmer well you know they know how to move the arms and the legs to get them and stay afloat from one end of us you know but then there's academic discipline you know how to give your attention to read a paper and retain it there's sporting discipline there's academic discipline there's discipline of speech there's discipline in music and so although I mean even sitting down and doing hundreds of scales I mean it it is a discipline but it all allows I mean the discipline of a swimmer gives them freedom of the water if you don't have the discipline of a swimmer you cannot go on water so it's a very positive thing in a way if you look at it from that point of view and so it is that type of discipline we're talking about the Shankaracharya says in fact Discipline means moving freely. It's just giving it a shape, but all the time sensitive to the love from the inside, and it's a perfect balance. In fact, when it's really in balance, the love and the discipline, you, you can't tell which is which, really. And the vase, this is what we should have at 16. The vase is the formed character. The clay was there at the beginning, it's all there from the start. It's just a question then of how it is formed. With some of us, we just say it's a, you know, a s- clump. <laughs> <And> <laughs> but should we develop
3: our characters
0: to beyond 16? we develop the characters? Yes, but well that was the question that came here from the front. And we do refine and uh, reform our characters beyond 16, thank God. Uh, otherwise, it would be a dreadful sentence to have passed on But anyway, we're talking just, that that is character. And good character just means that life, if it's good, life will be easy and happy. There's further to go, and you you certainly, in displaying or fully, freely displaying what you've got, there is huge opportunity for um, growth of being. But that is another matter. In education, we're really trying to make Life of the individual and society lawful and happy.
1: And provide the ability to cope with the Shakespeare said the and hours of outrageous, outrageous fortune, fortune, all that sort of stuff. Absolutely.
0: And for that, they need knowledge. They need true knowledge, um, both about themselves and about the world. They need knowledge. Mm. And there's very little true knowledge around, and that's one of the things that you really pine for that you really would love the children to have. Even in these areas where they get so hooked, like music and drugs and... I mean, bad music and drugs, sex, relationships, you know, they get it so dreadfully wrong, and it's not their fault. They're not being given the knowledge. And if they're given the knowledge, then they won't have the excuse to get it wrong.
1: While well, I have this microphone, could I just ask you a question? Please, yes. Your talk was most interesting, most interesting. And you've covered a long period of time in which this mm. system has gestated. And I'm trying to assimilate what you've said and relate it to the long ago time that I was educated at that stage of life by the Christian brothers, spending five years in a boarding school and so on. Mm. The education at that time was fairly rote. There were with the occasional star teacher who, like the Dead Poet Society, yes. cast something our way in, and we benefited from it. Yes. Uh, one of the things in the boarding school that has stood to me always was that we had uh, two hours, sorry, an hour and a half for reading every night. And there was a library in this room. Books have been my way of educating myself ever since. Mm. And uh, my children's way as well, they've always had books. But I'm trying to get to the pragmatic side of what you're saying uh, from an education point of view. And it's a subject that one, of course, could talk from so many broad ways, in so many broad ways, or from so many broad perspectives, but just two somewhat narrow observations on it from that pragmatic point of view. How do you cope with the contradiction where parents might tend to undo the positive, thoughts and positive encouragement that you provide or your system provides, one. And secondly, how in the name of goodness do you get your students to pass the junior cert and the leading cert at the same time and most laudably um, inculcate them with the philosophy of education that you've talked about? I'm envious of it and would like to come back, as one of my um, Hare Krishna friends says, and relive it, <laughs> relive that sort of life. Mm-hmm. And just as, yeah. as, a, as a, f- a final point, one of the things I was very conscious of from a very early age, perhaps in the very start of secondary school, was the importance of John Scotus Erigena Really? the whole education system. Yeah, I've always a hero? been aware of him. That great and, to hear. Um, yes, indeed, and it's fascinated to hear you mention him. Oh, I could go on, but I think I've probably said enough. But I'm oh, fascinated. Okay.
0: Thank you. In relation to the first point about parents messing it all up. The Shankaracharya said the most wonderful thing. He said that if home, school and society do not have the same point of view, then you have a confused, mixed up and vigorous being. That's what you produce. Now society is not going to be saying the same as home and school. There is some hope that home and school could be saying the same thing. And it is very helpful if, I mean, it is really essential that home and school do cooperate in this. So the school has to be very clear with the parents. And it has to let the parents know where it's coming from on all issues and why it is. So before a parent even sends their child to the school, they do need to understand it. What it is. So the sound we put out through prospectus, and by other means, has to be clear and clearly heard. I do find that those that do come for interview, or that take an interest in the school, they've picked up a sound in our prospectus, and that's what they like. They ask about everything else later on, you know, just there's something about this school. They like, and they appear. And, you know, they ask about the other things, like the exams that you've asked about, later on. But it's very important. I mean, we had a parent meeting last night, and you're aware every time you meet with parents that it is an opportunity to say what the school is here for. And you try to get them all rowing the same boat in the same direction. So anyway, and society, well, I guess it's just down the road a bit, because society isn't saying the same thing on all things. It's in some things it is saying the same thing, but not on all things, not in all important matters. So that's where in the teenage years the children run riot, really, is, is they get this avid interest in what society thinks. They have no interest in what their parents think, and they're trying to fight against what the school thinks a huge interest in society so when they're 10 suddenly t- antennae go bing like this and they pick up what society thinks about everything and suddenly that becomes the kind of dominant sound in them for a number of years and then during that period the parents and school are really trying to explain to them why we do things in a certain way and why they should do you not think they're being They're not being what in other words, it's, you know, it's, I didn't get that word.
3: Marketed at.
0: Marketing. Marketing
3: people. Like if you take... Most of them go around in sort of Umbro or Nike shirts and, and trainers, they're all identical. Absolutely. So they're literally sort of merchandising boards, really. But oh, yeah, As absolutely. far as developing their personality.
0: You know, oh, yeah, but if you went around in Nike tops and shoes, they would be out of them in a second.
4: <laughs> it has to be
0: different. You know, it has to be different. They'd hate me if I came in you know, the tie down and and shirt hanging out. They'd hate me for it because I was doing what they do. So they've got their antennae out and they're they're really just picking up society's influences and they want to act like them. Now, the process is all education, as I keep on having to say, teachers, this is about education, right? It's not about producing the perfect being. Just education, so just slowly but surely. They really are learning reason through that period. They're learning why they should act in a certain way and they're also learning how the principles they've learned as youngsters should be able to flower and show in the secondary stage you find you also rub up against their willfulness and they're wonderfully willful from 10 to 16 and at the 16 and uh, 16 it changes And, and i don't mean 18 i don't mean 21 i mean 16. They want to be different, they want to have a different relationship with you as a teacher and as a parent. And if you change with them, they will thank you forever. And they'll be with you forever. If you miss that point of 16, and you're still treating them like 14, you lose them forever. Then your second point, which was related to the exams, and how could you possibly marry this up? Well, it's rather like I quoted in the lecture, The self, which we realise can have a full and meaningful relationship with the world. And we'd have to regard the exams as the world and all the important things we're trying to teach them in John Scotus as relating to the self. Now, there is no conflict. In fact, it's very, very useful because the instruction relating to these really important matters is actually... It involves quite a short space of time. You can't talk philosophy for six hours in a day, but you can talk English and Irish and French and science. You can talk all those things for six hours. Your instruction in relation to this important spiritual area is actually relatively short in terms of time, but powerful in terms of punch. So they all do take an interest in, in exams because the world is telling them to, and they rather like, as I said, what the world tells them to, so public exams are very useful, really useful. They do them and they get them, and they get good marks.
5: It's very, very interesting, the whole evening's been very interesting. Going back to the point of, to realise the self, this first stage in that those three words is a lot. Mm. You mentioned love with a capital L and S, I would say with a capital L. With capital S. S. Yeah. <laughs> <Hope so. laughs> or love is, Well it's the same. Yes. Love thy neighbour as, as thyself. So and there's other questioners who have talked about love being important from outside, to be shown love, which I was. And in my school there was knowledge, and I learnt by wrote. But there were moments of pausing the pause, mm. to be still. Mm. There was a morning assembly, and there was singing. My moments of self were in poetry, painting, or gazing out of the window, or through a, a, a teacher, as you say, a, a noble professional. And I am amazed and uh, heartened to hear that your pupils would pause or be still. Did you say 20 times? Yes. All right. And self-realization may never come. And you're talking about these 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 18-year-olds. At moments, my one question is, is there self-realization? Now, I've, in later years, studied and meditated and have gone to the two classes, one and two, and I found it difficult to pause and be still Mm. two minutes in the morning and maybe an afternoon and we would be asked very gently whether we managed this week and how (laughs) many times, you know. Yes. So I am amazed at that and it's a wonderful thing to be still, but... One can do that and forget. It's remembering, reminding oneself of the self, of the mind, reminding. I'm very good at quotes and words and I actually have felt this self, oneness, love. But The ego can come rushing in and there is the discipline through books or maybe a guru that I also need. Would some of your pupils, when they leave the school, forget completely and be taken over by marketing or the outside world or drugs or whatever? I suppose
0: there's a few Uh, questions in there. Yes, indeed, yes, indeed. And just to start at the end, I don't know yet, and we'll just have to wait and see. All education is to provide them with no excuse not to realise the self. I mean for every reason to realise the self and they should feel fully equipped to do that. But they have a past as well and it may be a long past and that past will also be working and the company they fall into will also be working on them and society will be working on them. So exactly when each chooses to or finds themselves waking up to the reality and really using what they have inside them. God only knows. I mean, there was this lady called Maura O'Halloran. Do you heard about it? She's produced, or there's a book of her diary called Something Like Pure Heart, Enlightened Mind. She's Irish, went to Trinity first class honors, I think, in maths. I mean, she was a bright girl. Went off to Tokyo, age 24. Really struck with Tokyo as a banal piece of earth, really. Went into a temple and bang, she was home. It was an all-male temple, as they, they are, uh, but she got taken on. And she spent three years but you should read the three years, I mean, she, she applied herself. Mm. She applied herself, and it is really inspiring. Yes, yeah, so she, yeah, she achieved, in the terms of the Buddhist order, she achieved enlightenment. Mm. And she was coming back here, through County Wicklow, where we now stand, to start a Buddhist centre. And wasn't she going through India and the bus driver fell asleep and of course she was the last to get on the bus because she let everybody else on first so she sat at the front so she was killed and then all of her stuff was stolen as happens if you have a crash in India and somehow by some miracle this diary survived and you should read it but it just shows that you never know when, I suppose, like the fruit is ripe. When the fruit is ripe, it'll fall off the tree. And you're not, we don't know when that's going to be. But all I think we can do is encourage all efforts to the direction of discovering the truth about life, which is the only thing that will satisfy them. And they may carry with them any of the, their talents, and they will have talents showing the subjects they've been taught in school or in the area of art or music or sport. They will have talent. And with that they will serve the world and with that they will discover the truth. Or through that, actually they will discover the truth. That's what has to happen. One last question, then. one last question. Yes. Oh yes. Closing time.
2: I have the honour and pleasure of working with multinational companies and teaching people to become self-aware at all ages and the transformation that is going on is probably not particularly apparent but there are many companies, many of the Fortune 500 companies now practice meditation There are meditation rooms in many, many companies around the world. Mm. It is not necessarily called meditation. It has terms like high-performance mind and, uh, and all sorts of words. But it is meditation. And pause and these other practices are becoming, let's say, in a small number of influential companies, quite common practice. I think we should take heart that what you're doing is contributing to that, but it is already occurring in adult education. And so there is the difficulties that you described in terms of changing beyond 16, I think probably aren't as hard as as some of us perceive in high-performance minds. And and they are the privileged few, but they do have a major effect upon the way society, through industry rather than government,
0: is changing. Absolutely so. I mean, I have to say that having said everything about character, if a person does take to a spiritual way, that's to say, if they do take on meditation or spiritual discipline of this simple sort, that almost anything can happen. But that's what they have to take on first. That's where the consciousness will come from and that's where the transformation will come from. And indeed, uh, those are the seeds that all the time you're trying to plant in the minds of the young that might, at some stage in the future, uh, wake them up. And the strangest thing is that it is when you've got someone who's been really awful, really naughty, and a teacher pulling out their hair and you have them in your study on their own. that. You can have the real conversation <laughs> and, and you start telling them about what they really are, and you start drawing distinctions between the extraordinary action they have and they go to there and what they really are and where they can really go and at those moments although they might not be able to transform their behavior immediately, you know that. They will. You know that the words you're speaking are having an effect. So, I mean, I think for all of us, it is to keep speaking. And language is by far the number one power that man has. And to keep speaking, and keep speaking the truth, keep speaking about the potential so that people hear it and they get uplifted and inspired and we'll move forward from that. Uh, It's a great pleasure that I've had tonight, since it's been recorded, is that I'll be able to hear your questions again, and hear all the bits of your questions that I didn't answer. They were excellent questions, and thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen.